Hey, this is Thor from Cybrary. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of 41X This Tonight. I'm your host, Joe Carson, and it's going to be a fantastic, fun episode today. Uh, based in Talon, Estonia, I'm the Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Lycotic Centrify. And I'm welcome with an awesome and amazing, you know, celebrity guest with me today. Um, everyone knows. Uh, uh, so, well, first of all, <laughs> I'll let you introduce yourself because you're the best at introducing yourself. So, uh, Dustin, you want to give us an intro who you are and what you do? Yeah, not a problem. I'm Dustin Haywood, otherwise known in the industry as Evil Mog from Team Hashcat, and I am a password cracker for X-Force Red. Uh, I break into companies and show them where their problems are so they can fix them. Awesome. And I mean, definitely, this is a major pain in the industry. And the to- today's topic is all about passwords and password pain. And, you know, also, you know, busting some of the myths that's out there as well, because there's a lot of myths about passwords. And uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings and assumptions. And we're going to try and really educate the audience today into, you know, those challenges, busting some of those myths, and then really giving some good best practices in, our, in order how you can become more cyber smart with your passwords as well. Uh, so that's the real theme. So, so Dustin, just give us a breakdown. What, what today, you know, what are passwords protect, protecting? And what are some of the most common mistakes that people do uh, when choosing or, or using passwords? Well, that's the fun part. Passwords protect literally everything. I mean, if you look at the number of accounts we have, I've got stuff for my pizza delivery, my local (laughs) library, my airline cards, my bank, my home alarm systems. Even my fridge has a password now these days. And the biggest mistake people make is they will set their password to be the same on every single site they go to. Now, it could be long and random and everything else. But here's the problem. You as a consumer have no way of knowing that anything you're logging into is handling that password correctly. Um, we actually used to run a demo of this at Black Hat and DEF CON where we'd say, like, here, enter in a password and we'll crack it live. In the back end, we weren't doing any proper uh, password storage. We were you know, taking the password and uh, hashing it two different ways in the back end to make our lives easier for recovery. Um, some sites will store the password in plain text and email it back to you. So now let's say they've emailed you back your password and it's signed in for your library. That's the same password for your bank. Some miscreant can go log mm-hmm. onto the bank now, say that library gets popped, which will happen routinely, and now drain your bank account unless you have things like multi-factor authentication. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a really important, uh, uh, you know, uh, comment you made is that not all, you know, login screens have the same security implemented in the back end. And that's a lot of assumptions when we go and we, we always see is username and password. And we don't really understand about how they're dealing with that in the background. Um, they might be still using, you know, old legacy SHA-1, you know, hashing in order to actually encrypt or to, to deal with that password. Or they might even still be using clear text. So yeah, you know, clear text, <laughs> Landman. I've seen NTLM. We've seen all these weird proprietary ones where some even just truncated eight characters, or even worse, some will store it in, like portions of it, like enough for your PIN. Because someone asks you to enter in your password on the phone IVRs. How do those things yeah. match up? Absolutely. And another, so the other, that's you know, what is, one of the other big mistakes is you mentioned using the same password in every every account, and that really exposes. And we see that time and time again. Every time there's a new data breach. 
um, and it, your password gets disclosed. That just means that it's very easy for an attacker to, to basically look at what other services potentially that person is using and then start doing brute force across all of them to find out which ones work. And even uh, to the point where, you know, can you talk about a little bit about, you know, when you're using things like rules and masking, when passwords, you know, simple variations of passwords, people might just change one letter um, or just one simple variation, you know, how easy it is to guess those. Well, here's the thing. Most humans can't generate a password to save their life. Um, I'm just going to be honest with this. The patterns are highly exploitable. Even when humans are randomly typing away at a keyboard, in most cases, they're following a specific pattern depending on their keyboard layout. We have everything from keyboard walk generators to massive word lists that try variations. When you can try you know, 1.2 terahash or 1.2 trillion passwords per second in an internal corporate Windows Active Directory environment, for example, those passwords are going to fall incredibly quick. And the number of people that use variants of passwords that are out mm -hmm. in the real world on their corporate environment passwords is just insane. I'm going to be honest, the only real good password is one that's completely random. The problem is humans can't remember 400 <laughs> different passwords. I can't, and I'm in the industry. Like, I'm sorry, I just I can't. The only way I'm surviving is with a password manager that has them all stored in there mm -hmm. so I can have them cycled routinely. Because the other thing is, even if they're in a password manager, you should still rotate your passwords yeah. at least once a year at a minimum. Absolutely. And that's, that's another big thing. One of the, you know, we talk about a lot of industry best practices and, and recommendations. And a few years ago, there was the, you know, there was the big question. If you're using multi-factor authentication or two-factor authentication, do you ever need to change your password? And that was always for me, it was, I mean, it was a big debate in the industry about whether that's a good practice or not. And for me, you know, the question always comes down to, well, what is it protecting? Because as you mentioned earlier, it goes from everything from your fridge to your car, to your bank account, to your, you know, uh, bank details, to your you know, medical records, everything's protected, but not everything's equal. And therefore, you know, I look at, you know, what is protecting, what's behind that password, what's been protected. And therefore, even if I do have multi-factor authentication, I do still look to, you know, periodically rotate those credentials. Because sometimes... Well, you don't have to rotate them all, right? Like, yeah. that's the thing. Sorry to interrupt. Like, I separate my passwords into tiers. Yes. I have a tier one, my banking passwords, my critical mm -hmm. HR stuff, my health stuff. I have my tier two, you know, my video game systems for the online gaming stuff, yeah. the stuff that I might kind of care about, but it's not the end of the world. There's no financial mm -hmm. impact to me. Then I've got throwaway passwords for accounts. Like I'm just doing a simple single yeah. sign-on with my phone while I'm out trying to go get a table at some restaurant. They have to go maybe yeah. sign into their proprietary thing. I'm going to use a junk password on that because quite frankly, I'll never use it again. As long yeah. as I'm using it on a junk email that I'm throwing away later. Yeah. And even to, to your point as well, one of the things that we commonly then do is we have... Uh, everything feeds back into the same email account. Um, and what, what I've actually gotten the practice is not only having uh, my passwords in tiers to the same, you know, I've got my higher sensitive accounts to my medium to my low. And I've also then got random email accounts set up that ties those for things like password resets. So when I'm doing those junk, I've got basically my junk email that all of those notifications and subscriptions will go to. And then I've got my main communication and then reset. So I try to also get it into separate categorizations as well, just to make it a little bit more difficult for attackers to know which, which email account is associated to which credential. Yeah, that's something people don't realize. Like, say, for example, a lot of popular email providers, I hate to name companies, but I'm going to say Google is an example on this one. Yeah. They allow you to do, like, plus at the end of your email then type on miscellaneous additional data. Yeah. So, you know, Dustin.Haywood or whatever I wound up being this week could be plus 
junk company one, junk company mm-hmm. two. So you can also track who's spamming you in the process. Um, but I usually have something like FB spam at whatever mm-hmm. uh, email provider, just as an example for here's Facebook junk. Mm-hmm. Again, not naming terrible sort for naming companies, but it's just an example of social media. Um, the thing is, people can track you with open source yes. intelligence across these various social media platforms. So if you're post, you know, if you've given them your email to sign mm-hmm. up for a discount on your electrical or your power, for example, they might use that to stalk you in cyberspace. So I make sure mm-hmm. those are separate. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's been big discussion, you know, can you also get into explaining some of the differences, you know, and for me, I look at everything as a secret, as a top kind of level, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a secret, and that's what passwords should be. And everything rolls up into that secret, whether it being the pin for your ATM card or your loyalty cards, whether it being a password. And there's been a lot of discussions into using passphrases, um, and then using your combinations of uh, random words. We see a lot of those used in, in multi-factor authentication where you get these your random words coming back and then you type it because it's easier to, to remember and type those words uh, rather than lots of random characters. Can you explain a little bit about passphrases and is it something that you would recommend people to use? Um, as, a, as more of it, it's not, it's not, for me, it's the same as a password. It's just a technique of creating a much easier to, but longer password. Yeah, so I mean, you're going to need some kind of passwords are just a shared secret, and you're going to need some kind of secret to get into your password manager. So making sure you know your password is actually a passphrase, reasonably mm-hmm. long, something good to remember. The key thing is get a large amount of entropy into it, um, yeah. so that you can at least make sure that you know a person typing away random stuff on a machine can't you know crack the passwords when you're mm-hmm. up against 1.2 trillion hashes. Now the thing is with the password manager, most of these, especially the online ones, like the major mm-hmm. ones out there, they're going to protect against real-time logons in most cases. So you're not it's not like someone's trying that many passwords mm-hmm. per second. But when it comes to like actual logging onto a site, again, it's just a shared secret. So the best ones are ones that were machine generated, random, yeah. long, massive amounts of entropy and massive amounts of length. And Despite what everybody says, NIST especially, you still need to rotate your passwords at work. And the reason for that is in Windows, password hashes are password equivalent. So I can log on with the hash even if I don't have the password, which is why it doesn't matter if your password's 128 characters long. I can still log in if I've got the hash through some of the many ways of getting those out. Absolutely. And that's a really that's an important point is, that, you know, and that's very commonly technique used by attackers is that they don't necessarily they're not looking for the password. They're just looking for residents of that hash. And if they get access to um, a machine in the environment that has local administrator rights, then basically they can they can find the hashes from anything that's logged into that device in the domain. And then if that password or, or system has never had that password rotated, they can reuse that to hash to move around laterally and even up to the point where they can actually get into the domain controller. Um, so absolutely. And that's that's a I think a lot of organizations don't realize that. And sometimes even when they're creating things like service accounts, um, that they even leave them rather than not having them log on. They actually put them as log on. Therefore, they can actually also use the pass the hash as well. And that also creates a yep. major challenge uh, because they're not configuring those correctly. Um, what, what are other common mistakes? Uh, what about um, you know people that's simply you know using dictionary words? Is that something that should be you know especially in a passphrase? Um, you know, using four or five words just to make a long password, but using dictionary words to do so. 
So it depends on where you're giving those four or five words from. If you're drawing them from the common, you know, here's 4,000 word dictionary, like the what five words or whatever else, we have techniques to go do combinator attacks effectively and cycle those in. Um, your word just becomes a long token. It requires a bit more tooling, mm-hmm. but eventually those can be cracked. Um, they, they're a bit longer. And the, as long as the entropy is high, that's possible but again those things should only be used for protecting your password itself to your password manager for a standard issue logon site if you can remember your password it's probably a bad password (laughs) absolutely i mean for me i have the practice i i I use password managers and privilege access to manage all majority of my accounts and i i don't know the passwords they're extremely you know whatever the system will take is what I put in as the password. And I put in as much complication as possible, um, as much basically, you know, special characters, the maximum length, and then determining, you know, what the severity, what the risk, going back to earlier, you mentioned about having different risks based on what's protecting. Then I set basically the expiration or rotation timeframe. So therefore making sure it's as difficult as possible and making sure that that password isn't, doesn't become steel or doesn't become that if it even is disclosed or part of a breach, that an attacker can't reuse it. Um, so, you know, I, Windows 128 characters were possible, whatever the UI, or, you know, whatever, whatever it possibly can take. And I, sometimes I look at the lengths. There's no way I could remember the passwords in my head. Uh, but going now, into there is a curse to this, though. Yeah. If you have a really long password, now I'm not sure if you play mm-hmm. video games like on consoles or have like one of those set top boxes. Trying to enter <laughs> in your streaming service <laughs> password is such a metric pain. So I bought a new fifth mm-hmm. gen or whatever the current generation is of all the unobtainium consoles. Finally got one in the other day. And the current console I got has this little QR code option now. And I go to sign mm-hmm. into my streaming service. It just says, take your phone, scan this. You scan the QR code, pulls up the sign-on page, does a proper OAuth. Yeah, hit your password manager, hit sign-on. Your TV just signs in for you. Now, this wasn't the case for all of my services. <laughs> I'm going to growl at a couple of them. I'm not going to name names on this call. But if you're listening from a major media company, please enable OAuth, QR code, 2FA sign-on for all your uh, services because it made my sign-up process for the accounts that supported it so much easier. Trying to enter a 128-character password into my console was hard. No, I completely agree. And there's a lot of services, whether it being media, music, streaming, gaming, um, that if they haven't got OAuth enabled, that uh, you're sitting there with this massive long... And especially if you're putting a lot of compli- you know, complexity into it, <laughs> and you might be yeah. even using different keyboards. <laughs> you know, so for those, <laughs> yeah, because you've got like an Estonia keyboard or like you have possible different language keyboards, right? Exactly. Versus you know, if you introduce on an English one. Yeah, for those, I used to use an eight-character password, maybe 12 tops. It randomly generated 12-character passwords are actually fairly hard to crack if they've hashed them correctly in the background. Yeah. So for like, consoles... I will forgive reducing it down to 12 <laughs> characters because I am human and I can't type that stuff in. <laughs> no, absolutely. And what I mean, so another common thing that I find, we did, we did a survey, some research recently. And one thing that really gets me is a lot of people that's using their browsers to storing passwords. And sometimes, you know, for me, it's, it's not a password manager. It's basically a password. Basically, it's, it's a bit better than having a text file but not actually any better, especially because m- most browsers out there, they don't actually uh, have additional security turned on by default. So basically by putting your password in the browser, 
is basically just for me like storing it in clear text in your desktop. It is pretty bad. I mean, if you've seen tools like Sharp Web that will extract mm -hmm. out your Chrome, Firefox, IE, Edge, Brave, pick your browser, mm -hmm. like it completely dumps everything out, puts them to clear text for us. Also, things like there's um, uh, Invoke Session Gopher and other tools mm -hmm. like that that will go through and steal putty keys out of memory and. The stuff that's stored in memory, if you compromise a host and there's credentials on mm. there, we will find it. Yeah. Especially, I mean, I wish that it was that if you if you were deciding, because browsers, they really, they, they just pop it up there. It's like, would you like us to remember that for you? We'll, we'll store it here. And they make it sound like it's some additional protection. And they'll also sometimes give you, you know, the, the generation, auto generation for passwords as well when you're typing in forms. But when you simply look at it and you go and you just type in passwords in the field or you just go to the, the settings, security is off by default. And for me, I, I always think that, you know, it should be that if you do choose to use it, they should actually force you to turn the security on and protect it with additional security. So therefore, it's not just something that's left open. If an attacker gets access to your, your laptop, or your device, they'll access to your browser. And that means all the credentials. And it's very likely that they'll be able to see all the different, you know, uh, variations of password used. And a lot of people put in their VPN in there. They put their organizations, Active Directory accounts. They put in the SaaS-based applications, Azure, AWS. as all somebody saved in the browser. So it means an attacker who gets access to all that information. It's literally, you know, it's, it's, it's an open door for them to get access to everything in the organization. Well, and even when they do protect it, they're usually protecting it with DP API in Windows, which if we've already compromised your machine, we have the DP API master keys or people like HarmJoy have written tools to go tell us how to grab the master keys out. So we're already covered. I mean, the stuff that's in Mimikatz now, the gentle Kiwi, I'm deeply yeah. afraid of you know, going near the Windows browser stuff again. It's not because the teams haven't done a good job of securing it. It's just the attackers have done such a great job of building attack tools for it now. Absolutely. And so what, what would you recommend? What, what say, you know, what's some of the recommendations you would have for the audience who's really at the moment really looking at, you know, all these accounts that they have, you know, social media, personal accounts, you know, ordering food, booking, you know, transportation to booking flights to logging into the organization systems. What recommendations would you have for them in order to actually you know, help protect themselves and make better choices? My best recommendation, well, we start off with two recommendations. First one is to companies out there. To companies out there, get an enterprise password manager and start a privileged access management program. Rotate your passwords, and more importantly, rotate your Kerberos TGT keys in every Active Directory domain twice a year at a minimum. I generally recommend every three months. That way it rolls um, basically twice in a year. And the reason for the rolling it twice is it stores the or the previous KRB TGT hash is valid for signing tickets even after it changes. So you have to rotate it twice to kill all the tickets. But make sure you're, it's easy for your staff to um, secure their passwords. It was their sole job is to get their day job done. They don't care mm -hmm. about keeping stuff secure. Even if you do all the training in the world, it, unless it's frictionless, they're not going to do anything about it. Um, and then in the personal side, get a password manager. Now, I know mm -hmm. we've been hearing in the media about how some password managers have been popped. And when I say popped, I mean right. hacked, breached, leaked, whatever else. But you got to understand this in context. Their scope of a breach was very brief or it was, hey, we had a briefly vulnerable piece of code that was rapidly patched. It was detected before there's mass exploitation. And a lot of these tools have the ability to rotate all your secrets after things are closed. They'll log on to all your sites for you one by one and change your passwords for you if you hit the rotate credential option. 
So get one of the major four. Um, mm-hmm. Even some of the free ones aren't terrible. Mm-hmm. If you're using the free, I understand the limitations, but I mean, I pay for a family one um, or even bigger is some companies will pay a larger one of the big four to get an mm-hmm. enterprise plan that includes personal usage for your entire family. Mm-hmm. Just get a password manager. They're cheap. They work. And there's one for every kind of style of moving around. Some are online, some are offline only, yeah. some are done in a wallet. The other big thing, though, is back up your passwords. I do a printout, and I know this sounds bad. I do a printout once a year or once every six months, depending on the thing. I stick it all in an envelope, and it goes into a safety deposit box mm-hmm. off-site. Here's the thing. You have everything in a password manager. Your house burns down. Do you have a backup plan to get into your accounts? Make sure you have yep. some kind of emergency kit printed out and stashed somewhere secure with somebody you trust or somewhere you trust. Mm-hmm lawyer's office or you know somewhere locked up in case you're you know you get hit in a motorcycle accident you need somebody to go clear your browser history yeah especially i mean especially if you're using things like biometrics and all of a sudden your, your finger gets damaged <laughs> you, you can never open that device <laughs> so yeah store your of, mfa yeah. backup seeds yeah. like keep backup authentication keys around we're in the day and age now where you need to keep backups of your authentication secrets because some of these managers are so good that you will never get back in yeah, especially i mean that's that's one of the i always recommend offline backups to a lot of organizations um, because you know the, the threat of ransomware as well. Your ransomware will mm-hmm. look and, and, and look to encrypt. If you do become a victim, and you're doing only online backups, then that can make it a lot of unavailable. And if they're encrypting, you know, if if your password file gets encrypted, you can never access it. So you must have a backup. And having an offline or an offsite backup um, is so critical, um, especially to, you know to be becoming more resilient and being able to recover. So can it also, you know, we look at a lot of these, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the years and this sometimes gets, you know, for me is around the whole passwordless concept. Because I, I, I look at it and I think that, you know, th- there's always a bit of a m- misunderstandings and assumptions. I, I get asked this all, all the time. What about passwordless? And for me, I, I like to kind of step back and think about, well, it's not entirely, I don't see it as passwordless, like passwords aren't disappearing. I just see it changing how we interact with passwords. It's changing the human interface between how we actually leverage them. I kind of my my common uh, recommendation is that it's actually about less password interaction. It's about moving passwords into the background. They're not disappearing. They're not becoming some type of magic. You know, was it a door opening? You know, ability where you're using things like biometrics to do so. Um, so for me, it's about moving passwords into the background and making less friction between the human and the authentication. Can you talk about a, a little bit more about you know what you see you know the future of passwords going, um, you know what changes, what new techniques will will help improve them? Well, I mean, I was originally against passwordless until I dug yeah. into it. Then I realized you're right; it is every machine. Like, let's look at Windows Hello mm-hmm. as an example yeah. for business. Windows Hello for business specifically, interacting with like an Azure Active Directory. In that case, there's still a machine secret; it still exists mm-hmm. on the box. The user never has to interact with it. The facial scan unlocks cryptographic material on the device used to log into your domain. But there's other things. If you look at like the zero trust concept that's kicking in with it as well mm-hmm. now, it's there's your machine endpoints are constantly being interrogated for changes. So if all of a sudden I log in from a hostile third nation as opposed yep. to my local home nation, all of a sudden I'm 
going to be locked out because it's a change in behavior. Or let's say all of a sudden my endpoint starts displaying unusual telemetry. My trust score changes, my authentication fails in the back end. You're still using the same kind of secrets. It's just the machine's taking more endpoints. So it becomes more of a fancy multi-factor authentication as opposed to a password-like type system. Like, let's look at me logging on to my PlayStation. Mm -hmm. I still had to use passwords, but that was a passwordless style logon. Um, I went in, I scanned the QR code, it did a back and forth in the back end, and now it's signed in. I didn't enter a single password on the console, I entered it in on, an, on another device, and that greatly reduced the friction because I sent copy and paste. Some yeah. of the newer passwordless systems do the same thing, only without copy and paste, they just automatically send it. Yeah. Um, things like logging on with hardware fobs with certificates tied to them. There's still a key on there. It's just been signed by a different method using public key crypto or public key infrastructure to make things easier. Absolutely. It's for, for me, I, I like to you know, use it as the term, it's moving them into the background. So it makes our lives, the interaction, our experience much more better. But the password still exists. There is a secret. There's a token. There's a, a key. There's something that's still being exchanged in the background. And they still, from, you know, from a security perspective, they still need to be managed. Somebody still needs to rotate them. You don't want all of a sudden to have a static application password that has become the same key that's been exchanged, you know, that, you know, that doesn't get changed. And we see that a lot with integrations, with a lot of, you know, applications type of integrations where you say, I want to allow this application to access data here. And you create this static application password. Uh, we see that a lot with the email clients is one of the most common places we see that. Um, and they become stale, you know, until you go actually and, and, and rotate it or until the only time you ever get notified, maybe when you get a new device two or three years later, that you have to enroll that device. It might mean they have to create this new application password. Is, is there something you recommend along, you know, how do you manage those, especially in getting visibility of them as well? Well, it depends on the technology too, right? Like, for example, JSON web tokens with static yeah. signing keys, common used in authentication components, um, open ID connect keys. Mm -hmm. The problem is there's no one tool to go manage all of these authentication secrets. Like, there's some tools that manage your certificates for mm -hmm. you, some that'll manage SSH keys, some will have um, tools for issuing JWTs like that are out there that are all written in Go that will shall mm -hmm. remain nameless on this call. Um, <laughs> there's other tools out there that are built as you know, programmable PKIs. The trick is automation and finding the right orchestration for your platform. And mm -hmm. again, because our industry is so wide and there's so many standards, and when someone writes a standard, they write a standard for making standards and that gets ignored through any more standards. <laughs> we have a highly fragmented ecosystem. You are never going to get 100% control of all of your secrets. The trick mm -hmm. is do an inventory of what you've got identify what how it happened if that secret doesn't get rotated and just continually do an evaluation because the landscape changes all the time if you stop learning for two months all of a sudden someone comes out with some new technique and you're behind the eight ball again mm -hmm. and it's gonna take you all to catch up absolutely i mean we've seen a lot of those uh vulnerabilities popping up this year especially with the likes of print nightmare um, being able to use, being able to use your prince filter to, to create a new uh, a local administrator account is pretty impressive. <laughs> so um, so not not uh, you know organizations uh, have many challenges to to face around this area. Um, also, well, it, I'm glad ahead. you brought up print yeah. nightmare by the way because. Prince Pooler has been the bane of our existence for at least two to three years. Um, if you look at even before this latest RCE, there's a new tech, there's an older technique to get a domain controller to authenticate to you with an NTLM version one of its machine hash, then use it to DC sync with a low level user priv. Everybody out there listening, turn off your Prince Poolers. Yeah. 
Definitely good recommendation. It's one of the first things I did when I heard about, <laughs> about was actually going and starting disabling it um, and patching systems as well, uh, making sure you're running the patches for them. Um, another thing is quite commonly, we talked a little, briefly a bit about it, is around things like uh, biometrics. And you, you talked about you know uh, Windows Hello and Cortana. Um, you get into also biometrics with phones and facial recognition. And one of the things I, I try to explain to people when think, people think about them as they replace passwords, but actually... Those for me are the identifi- they're identifiers. They're not secrets. Um, however, they have better security attributes. They come with much better security attributes. And it still means that the password for me is, is really starting to change. We talked about passwords moving the background and the human experience with things like biometrics are making that much more easier to use. But I see the password really becoming much more of a backup recovery key or a device enrollment key um, rather than something you use interactively on a frequent basis, it becomes something you use to either add a new device or to enroll a new account or to migrate when something happens or if the security changes, let's say the risk you, you know the risk score that you have changes. Talk a little bit about you know biometrics and and, and where that fits in and also um, you know where you know what what is the password really you know evolving into in the future. So let's look at the past or look at biometrics. So the problem with biometrics as an example is depending on the uh, jurisdiction you're in, some of the courts have ruled that evidence gathered via biometrics, such as police officers forcibly putting people's fingerprints up to a phone or using things to scan faces, have been ruled admissible as evidence because you're not or revealing a secret out of your mind. So in many cases, the password is the only thing that will save you from having evidence forcefully extracted from a system, uh, depending on your jurisdiction. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer, so you know, seek legal advice in your local zone. However, we have been telling people when crossing a border, for example, make sure you're, um, you know, if you look at a Mac, you have the fingerprint unlock. Fingerprint unlock doesn't work from a cold boot. Same deal with a number of phones. Turn your devices down or completely off so that that um, fingerprint authentication doesn't work. Um, really, biometrics is a username, a highly secure username mm-hmm. as opposed to a password. You still need something that's only in your mind to go unlock things. Otherwise, you know, let's ignore the border thing. Let's say you know, you're out at a bar somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, not that any of us drink in this industry, but let's say you're out at a bar and you you know, meet somebody else out there. All of a sudden, you start feeling mildly lightheaded because they slipped something in your drink and they try and go drain your bank because it's all set up for multi-factor via your yeah. fingerprints. That's a common attack in some parts of the world, unless you've got various pins, et cetera, to go mm-hmm. unlock your phones. Like you know, some of this frictionless now has become a two-way street and now, you know, or a double-edged sword rather, and can harm you more than it helps. Absolutely. And that's good. I mean, I think I benefit quite a bit from being located in Estonia because, you know, all of this has been actually built into society here where we do have, you know, we have our digital identity. And that's tied to a, a was it a, a, a cryptography key exchange? And it's also tied to that. In order, you've got a authentication pin, then you've got a signature pin, um, and that's all kind of along you. So you can actually do up until a certain amount, you can do bank transfers. But then once a bit higher, uh, you know, about 40, 50 euros, then it requires you to actually then do the authentication pin. And then it becomes bigger than a bigger amount, then you have to do the signing pin. Um, so those types of things, you know, become much more difficult and challenging in order to to really, it, it's just making it more difficult for attackers to be successful and not making it too easy for them. And that's ultimately kind of what our goal is. Our, our job in many cases is to understand the risks 
listen to, to the businesses and help reduce those risks by putting the right controls in place. Well, I'm glad you brought up risks. This is one more I forgot to talk about is a lot of people are relying heavily on SMS-based multi-factor authentication. And given the number of SIM jacking attacks mm -hmm. out there, that's one of those things that we're highly recommending to companies to either stop doing or add on additional layers of controls in addition to just the uh, pin via SMS. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, stealing a uh, or porting a number over using SIM jacking techniques or you know, calling up your phone company saying, hey, I want to move this number from one SIM to another. Very easy with social engineering in the back end. Mm -hmm. Highly recommended you get some other form of authentication that's not SMS based. Absolutely. I mean, and there's so many out there and there's so many that free versions as well. Use a lot of authenticators that you can simply download. There's ones for business that you can actually manage through the enterprise. There's one for personal use. And, you know, I highly recommend, you know, get, get using a lot of, you know, a minimum two-factor, where possible multi-factor. And again, going back to your original point, it all comes down to the risk. Um, and not all two-factor or two-step or SMS-based is equal. They're not the same. So it's important to understand about what is the risks uh, being introduced um, and to make sure that you're, you know, whatever account that is you're protecting, whatever the risk is to that account, you want to apply the right security controls to make it more difficult and as, as also, you know, as, as secure as possible, uh, depending on what that is. So um, other things to kind of remind, what, what about um, when we get into talking about uh, reporting side of things and getting visibility, um, you know, should, should we be looking, you know, periodically at activities? Should we be looking at how old passwords are? We mentioned a bit, you know, by rotating them. Um, should you ever, you know, what's the case for you not rotating a password? What would be the reasons for doing that? Um, what about kind of getting in that visibility reporting side, um, looking at, for example, even failed login attempts um, from accounts? Yeah, you know, that's the problem. There's no universal way of looking at your failed login accounts. Like, mm -hmm. say I log look at my library as an example. They're not going to expose that information to me in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. it, you're really at the mercy of the provider you're logging in with. Um, there are some cases, obviously, of not rotating credentials. Like, let's say, for example, you've got my furnace has something tied into my Wi-Fi for whatever reason, if I was crazy enough for that. Um, and it took an outage, like I had to go shut down and turn off the pilot light to go change the secret. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm not changing that secret unless I absolutely have to, or unless I take something out of service. Um, there are a number of valid reasons. A lot of them are life safety. A lot of them are, hey, if I reach this, there's a risk of bricking it. Mm -hmm. um, oil and gas with SCADA systems, for example, some of those sensors are deployed in the field. And you're not getting to that without going through a substation and getting through you know, armed guards with guns. So that stuff's never getting swapped. Um, mm -hmm. You know, systems at the bottom of the ocean where you can't send a human service tech to get out. Yeah, that stuff's <laughs> never getting swapped. Um, it's just a matter of you know, going through and doing inventory of all your systems and telling you, hey, if this mm -hmm. gets popped, do a simple scoring of a scale of 1 to 10. How much will my life be uh, altered if this gets hit you know mm -hmm. one being i don't really care i'll put the password in a billboard 10 being if this thing gets hit i'm changing careers and quitting <laughs> no, i i completely agree it's actually going going back to it's all about risk it's about understanding yeah. about what the impact and if if it is ever compromised uh what is the result one of the things i want you to talk about is that you know there's there was a big news earlier this year about this 14 whatever gigabytes of of uh passwords and and when we really get into it um it wasn't actually passwords it was a word list can you explain to the audience a bit about what's what's the difference between you know disclose compromised passwords and that of a word list um you know because sometimes i think in the industry there's a lot of confusion into what what the difference is 
There is. So, like, let's look at Rocky, for example. The standard word list most of us use in Hashcat. That was a word list. What happened was somebody breached a site. They extracted out all of the credentials, but the word list we use doesn't have any of the usernames. Um, versus when we talk about leaked credential sets, mm -hmm. we're really talking about uh, something we call um, password stuffing. Mm -hmm. effectively or credential stuffing and what that is is we've got a list of username password pairs and we're trying them out on multiple other sites mm -hmm. so there's also variants in password cracking called shucking where we'll do like getting things down to an intermediate level of the the, the onion and we'll use previously password or cracked pairs to try and get yourself down to you know instead of crack, trying a couple billion passwords on a on a bcrypt for example mm -hmm. that's gonna take forever i'm gonna try 100 variants on bcrypt with a highly targeted password attack this is pioneered by chicken man also somebody who works with me over <laughs> at uh, xfr so there's techniques like that but really what we're talking about is people trade live credential pairs mm -hmm. so when there's a major breach we're talking about here's all the stuff leaked on some foreign hacker site um that has complete lists and some of them have varying levels of you know, quality. So that's at the top tier of the password world. Then there's what we call combination lists. A combination mm -hmm. list, someone went out and grabbed a bunch of passwords from multiple other sets and combined them together into one set, and they'll leak that out. And those are generally junk, but they make great headlines. Mm -hmm. um, the collection number one was an example of that, where it's just here's a giant list of stuff. Um, so credential pair sets are the most dangerous and those leak, but those typically get picked over really quickly by miscreants mm -hmm. out there. They'll test them all out and they'll extract what they can. And then within a couple of months, they're basically useless versus mm -hmm. a password set. It's just, here's all the passwords we've tried over the world. Like it's, you know, some of the various sites that are r rather large publish them. Um, Hashes.org publishes them as well. You know, we, those are handy. If you got a word list, I'm going to use a known word mm -hmm. list against passwords because that's just passwords people have tried in the field. The yeah. problem is people like me pollute those lists, um, so there's less usefulness in them. Mm -hmm. um, there's other folks that will sit there and they'll you know, take here's a junk list or they'll make up junk lists to get leaked onto the scene. So they'll take existing passwords, combine them with bad usernames, attach in randomly generated passwords and they say, here's my new magic list, just so they can get some scene credit. Mm -hmm. So the stuff that's out there, you sometimes you take out a grain of salt. There's also a lot of encoding errors in the data. Um, trying to mm -hmm. get into collecting and analyzing what's out there is difficult because no one has a primary or a completed list of everything because no one trusts each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, what I've seen most most kind of cases of ransomware in the past year, I've seen it from basically or you know criminals and, and attackers who um, specialize in gaining access. And what they do is they, they have those combination pairs. They've got the username and password, and they become very valuable. And what they end up doing is that, and, and all they do is, is they look to gain access. They will maybe do it through brute force, find that combination pair, and they will sell it to other criminals who will then use it and gain access, whether it to be to steal data or to deploy ransomware. Um, so, and, and what you'll end up seeing a lot of times, you know, getting involved in answer response, what you'll see is all of a sudden, maybe four or five months ago, the credential was, was discovered. Then all of a sudden, two weeks before the ransomware gets deployed, somebody was confirming that it was still active, and then you get, you know, then it gets sold, and the criminal comes in, they log in, whether through RDP or through whatever access or through a web interface, and all of a sudden, you basically, you know, it's only a matter of time before they deploy some ransomware or malicious, you know, activity in the organization. Uh, so definitely those those pairs. And one thing I used to look for as well was 
when you're looking for those, you look for a field log and attempts over a longer period of time for the same account. Uh, because a lot of times what they'll do is they'll do, they, they won't do it uh, to create a lot of noise. They want to stay stealthy as much as possible. So they'll actually spread it over a longer period of time. Um, because one thing that they do have is a lot of time. Um, and it's only a case, you know, until that one time is successful. Um, so it's really important to make sure that when you're looking for any type of noise, you try to make sure you're looking over for a longer period of time because sometimes when we look at it from a, a period of a day, you may not get that visibility into what the real uh, attempts are. Yeah, you need to look into like over the course of months. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some stat I heard, and it's probably inaccurate now, mm-hmm. so don't quote me on this, but the, the average dwell time was something like 154 days or mm-hmm. longer for and that. It could even be longer. I mean, I heard numbers as high as 270 or even 300 days. So that means someone's logged on, found a password, gained the access, farmed it, made sure it hasn't expired out by trying the variants of it, and sat there for the time is right, and then popped in. That's That just means we need to go find better detection controls because... I mean, that's why we're seeing things like red team engagements or adversarial simulation engagements now being popular because... you know, no, it's a dirty secret in the security industry. So mm-hmm. here, I'm going to spill the beans. <laughs> no security is 100% foolproof. All the controls you put in place are there for one purpose, and that is to slow down the attacker long enough for you to find them and evict them. Yep. They're going to get in. It's whether it's going to be a zero day, whether it's going to be something mm-hmm. else. Some someone's going to pop through every layer of your control at some point. And there's two types of companies out there: those that have had mm-hmm. an attacker in their environment, and those that don't know it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have my own motto as well that kind of goes along to that is that my, my job is to, you know, force is to, to make it to slow the attackers down, but not only slow them down, but force them to take more risks. And my job is to make sure that whatever techniques that they're doing is actually going to create more noise in the network. So the more noise in your logs, more noise and visibility to give you a chance the more noise they create, it will give you a chance of being able to detect them much earlier and getting them out of your network before they do something malicious, before they elevate privileges, before they uh, gain access to your sensitive data. The more noise that we can force them to create by making it more challenging, by you know rotating the Kerberos ticket, by creating more challenging, more complicated passwords, by not you know allowing them to use past the uh, hash techniques across the network, and getting into forcing them to to repeat their techniques more frequently will give more visibility in the logs, more noise, more more errors for you to be able to detect. You know, and there's so many. A lot of times when working on instance and digital forensics. And you might be working on one specific attack and all of a sudden you'll uncover that actually another attacker had access to the same network maybe at another point in time. So you, sometimes you find that there's multiple attackers in the network, just some of them have different motives. Some of them have financial motives, some of them have data theft motives. Um, so absolutely, you're right. There's two, two companies, the ones who know and the ones who don't know. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Like, and if you look at the security engineering, there's this concept that we borrow in some cases from the military industrial complex, like from nuclear weapons design specifically, called weak links mm-hmm. and strong links. Mm-hmm. And so what that is, is you basically build up your environment because attackers are lazy. You build up your environment in such a way that there's certain paths that will be a bigger pain to exploit than others. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to go for the low-hanging fruit. So you heavily instrument the weak links, the areas that were slightly intentionally weakened, but there's increased detection controls behind it, concept of like a honeypot, for example. So you want to steer them into the line of fire and then you know, make sure you concentrate fire where they're entering. There's techniques like that to you know, basically enhance traffic engineering to ensure that they wind up in a place where you can detect them and remove them. 
Absolutely. So that kind of, kind of for the for the audience, and we kind of summarize a few things up as well. Uh, is that you know we really want to get down to it is you know one is you know question is passwords going away? Will will we see the end of passwords anytime soon? No, I mean I'm not going <laughs> to see the end of passwords before I retire. And I mean I've still got another 10, 15 years before that happens. So I mean. I'll be happy to eat those words, but for now, it's a good career choice. Uh, absolutely, no, I, I'm, I completely agree with you. And I think the point what we made earlier is that um, is that they are moving more into the background, so people will see them less and less, um, and they're moving to the background. But they will still exist. We will still have to manage them. We will still have to secure them. We will still have to rotate them. We will still have to complement them with additional security controls. Um, you know, and and some of the best practices we talked about today is really. You know, get into the habit of using a password manager. If you're in a business, get into the habit of using privilege access security that will integrate and automate and rotate passwords periodically, you know, so you don't have to. Because the one thing I hate is having to do things manually and having to do them repetitively. And in our business, you know, where we can automate um, is the best thing because it makes, uh, there's one, one of the most valuable things that we have uh, in our world. And it's not, it's not oil, it's not money, it's not gold, it's time. All of us have one, you know, one thing in common is we only have a set amount of time in this world to do what we want to do. And the more that we can save and reduce wasted time, for me, is the most valuable thing in this world. Um, so the more we can actually put a lot of those things, you know, mundane tasks into the background, that's the most valuable thing that we can actually give our employees is reward them by removing and reducing wasted time. And that's what I kind of get into using password managers and privilege access security. Well, the other thing is, if you don't make security frictionless, people are going to do workarounds and find other ways of making things get around it. So, you know, we could put all the controls in the want or in the world we want, but if Bob does some kind of <laughs> bypass to get around the controls, yeah, all that goes out the window. Like someone's going to put a webcam up to a multi-factor authentication yeah. token so they can sign in to make things effective so they can work from home during the pandemic. If your tools aren't in place now to make things easy, they're already being bypassed. Absolutely. And what, what you, you're so right. And I've heard it, you know, getting more and more, you know, discussed is that we need to be making security usable more, you know, and, and anytime that one of the things I've mentioned in a lot of interviews recently, and when I'm talking, you know, doing uh, press articles and stuff like that, when I'm giving my feedback, and I get into is that anytime we're going to implement the security control, it has to be better, and actually more efficient than the existing control in place today. If your security is actually causing more friction or taking more time, they're going to find workarounds. They're going to find ways around that to circumvent it. So anytime we're actually putting a security in place, it must be better than the existing one in place today. It must. We want to get to the point where actually people want to be using security because it's better than the alternative. That's ultimately the path. Because ultimately, you know, if we don't, people are just going to hate it. It's just going to begin, you know, that you know, friction that, you know, security is, is preventing for people from doing their job. But we want actually people to see security as helping them do their job better, more automated, uh, more efficiently, more you know, effectively. And to point, you know, what we hopefully is, is moving passers more into the background. Yeah, speaking of passers in the background, one final public safety mm -hmm. announcement. If you are a Unix admin, please rotate your SSH keys that you use to sign <laughs> into your systems. Those things have probably sat there for the last four or five years and you've forgotten about them. You might want to add a fresh one and rotate them out. <laughs> Absolutely. And another thing for, for me is, is that I got my, my, my top on today. So yep. sudo is the root of all evil. So make sure you actually go and review all your sudo files as well. Um, because a lot of times they become stale and uh, not updated. And you might have a lot of users who may have left the organization might still actually have uh, pseudo, pseudo rights in a lot of those systems. 
uh, because they're not being managed. So for the audience, you know, hopefully this has been an entertaining and, you know, interesting discussion all around password pain. We've covered, you know, lots of different elements. Um, and uh, hopefully that, you know, you will look at passwords, you will take a risk-based approach. You will actually make sure that you're, you know, starting to use a password manager, starting to make better choices. Uh, Dustin, it's been awesome having you on the show today. Look forward to hopefully catching up in the near future. And uh, if everyone out there, stay safe and stay secure. Tune in every two weeks for the 401 Access Denied. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.